Well, hey there. Welcome to Chase Oaks Church and week two of our series, Songs of Summer, as we're looking at the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And before we jump in this weekend, let me just say briefly that if you missed last weekend's message, it is well worth your time to go back and watch. Uh, last week, Jeff Jones, our senior pastor, uh, talked about Psalm 88 and the importance of lament. And in the kind of cultural season that we are in right now, it was just such a timely message. And so if you missed it, uh, you do yourself a favor and, and go back and watch it. After this message is done, like don't do it right now. Uh, that would hurt my feelings. So, uh, but, but after this message or sometime this next week, go back and watch it. It was really, um, it was really, really great. So for this weekend, let me just say before we, we jump in that the types of sermons that I love to hear the most are the types of sermons that talk about the, the life that God has for us or the blessings that God wants us to experience or the mission of love that we get to be a part of. And just fair warning, I'm not talking about any of that stuff this weekend. I am going to be talking about something that is super important and just really valuable in, in most of our lives because I'm going to talk about how we deal with failure. And when I say failure, I'm not talking about the good kind of failure. You know, like if you read a business book, you'll hear them say things like fail fast or fail forward. Or if you're not failing, you're not trying. Like there's, there's sort of a level of failure that you need if you're going to innovate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the real painful failure, the type of failure where it just kind of threatens to derail your life. And I know that so many who are within the sound of my voice who are watching right now have already experienced significant failure or certainly know someone who has, or we've all seen so many prominent figures who have uh, been apologizing or have apologized because they were caught doing something or they did something stupid. And it's easy to get kind of cynical looking at those apologies and roll our eyes. But the truth is that for the vast majority of us, uh, at one time or another, in one way or another, we will have to deal with failure. Brene Brown, in her book, Rising Strong, talks about the fact that that life changing falls like those crisis events that just sort of alter the course of our lives, that those are just inevitable. They're part of life, but they can also be they can also be part of the process for us to live fully into who we are and to learn about ourselves and for for us to live fully into who God wants us to be if we respond rightly and if we uh, work through it. In the right way. And so that's what we're going to talk about. That's what that's what we're going to talk about this weekend. And what if I what if I told you? What if I told you that there was a process? Or that there was a way that no matter how bad you blow up your life, that there's a way to come through it stronger. Or no matter how broken your life becomes, there is a way to become whole Again, that's what we want to talk about. How do we become stronger and change after we blow it? And to do that, we're going to look at some song lyrics. You know, here in the middle of our Bible is this song book called the Book of Psalms. And these songs have stood the test of time and they have profound and meaningful lyrics that deal with every uh, emotional area of life. And countless generations have learned from these songs and been encouraged um, and been transformed by these lyrics. And I think it's safe to say that that, that can't be said from, for like all song lyrics. Like this week, I, I kind of had a fun time looking up bad song lyrics, uh, just Googling bad song lyrics. Here's some of my favorite 
uh, some of my favorites. Eminem in his song um, Love the Way You Lie says, now you get to watch her leave out the window. Guess that's why they call it window pane. Oh, yeah, that's pretty awful. All right. Um, number two for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, and their song Can't Stop. They say music, the great communicator. Use two sticks to make it in the nature. Now, in, in fairness to this song, um, I didn't say it quite right. You know, like the, the cadence of this song, you know, if you know this song, it says music, the great communicator. Use two sticks to make it in the nature. It almost rhymes uh, when, when you say it that way. It's still it's still dumb, but it, it rhymes. Um, Nick Jonas uh, gets pretty profound in his song Close when he says, because space was just a word made up by someone who's afraid to get too close. Actually, let me read that again. Because space was just a word made up by someone who's afraid to get too close. That one, it just makes me kind of angry. That, 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 those lyrics are so bad. And not to um, neglect the whole sort of wealth of bad lyrics in the uh, country music genre, uh, Tracy Atkins in his poetic, you know, brilliant song, Honky Tonk Badonkadonk, uh, says, uh, Lord have mercy, how'd she even get them britches on? I just, I don't know why I think this song is so funny, or this lyric is so funny. I, I think, I just love that he used the word britches. That's what, that's what makes it a country song. All right, last one, probably my favorite, um, from her song, Blah, Blah, Blah. Kesha says, zip your lips like a padlock. That's kind of hard to picture. Um, and let me just say, uh, I don't recommend going back and like reading all of the lyrics for these songs. Uh, some of these are pretty rough. Uh, but let me just, I think it's safe to say that these are, this is not the best example of high art and, uh, you know, song lyrics that are transformative. But if, but when we get into Psalm 51, which is where we're going to be today, we're talking about a psalm that has stood the test of time for close to 3,000 years. It is the best example that we have in our Bible, of how to deal with failure and how to navigate those emotions and and how to come out stronger on the other side. And the first thing that we see when we look at Psalm 51, even before we get to verse 1, there's this, what's called a superscript, even before verse 1, that kind of gives us context. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It is helpful that we be familiar with that story and keep that in the back of our mind when we read this psalm. And it's possible that you already know how everything went down with David and Bathsheba, or maybe you just know those names and don't quite know the full story. Regardless, here's the story. Early in David's life, uh, the king at the time, Saul, was so jealous of David that David had to live on the run in the wilderness just to save his life. And so he was kind of like this Robin Hood type character. And while he was in the wilderness, he sort of gathered around him this group of men who were who were soldiers, who were fiercely loyal to David, and they came to be called David's mighty men. And uh, later, when uh, later when David became king, and at one point, and he was uh, attacked, and he had to run into the wilderness again, he took his mighty men with him. These fiercely loyal soldiers, um, David owed his life to these men. There were 37 of them, and one of them was named Uriah the Hittite. Well, 
several years later, after that, um, David had sent all of his armies off to fight in different battles while he stayed home in Jerusalem. And one evening while he's in the palace, he's up on the rooftop in the cool of the day. And on the rooftop, he would have had a vantage point over all of the other rooftops because he would have been at a higher, higher point. And in the evening, while he's on the rooftop, he sees a beautiful woman bathing on her roof and he had to have her. So he calls for her and she is brought to him and he finds out that her name is Bathsheba and she is the wife of his comrade, one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. But it doesn't matter to David. He wants her. So he takes her and he sleeps with her. And later she reports to David that she is pregnant, which is a big problem because everyone will know that it's not Uriah's because Uriah has been Uriah hasn't been home. He's been off fighting. So David sort of uh, makes up this you know, scheme. He calls Uriah back home. Um, he, he says he wants to talk to him about what's going on in the battle. And so he spends some time talking with Uriah. And then eventually he says, you know, it is, it's a little too late for you to start the journey back. Why don't you go on home? Spend some time with your wife. Take a load off. Wash your feet. He says, which is kind of a wink, wink, you know, comment um, at, at the time to, to just sort of take comfort with your wife. And Uriah leaves. And then he later says, far be it for me to take comfort while my men are risking their lives and they're sleeping on the ground. And so Uriah sleeps on the ground outside of his home and he never goes inside. That's what kind of man Uriah is. Well, the next day, David uh, is told that Uriah never actually went home. And so David calls him back and he talks to them some more. This time they have a meal. This time David gets him drunk. And then and then David, while Uriah is drunk, he says, OK, now go on home. Go go spend some time with your wife. Wash your feet. Again, even drunk, Uriah refuses to to go into his home and be with his wife while while his men are risking their life and sleeping on the ground. So, again, he sleeps on the ground. Well, then the next day. David uh, sends Uriah back to the battle, but he sends him with a note for his commanding officer, Joab. And in that note, he tells Joab, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. And then I want you to withdraw from him so that Uriah will be struck down and killed. And in so doing, he makes Joab an accomplice to murder. Well, Joab uh, follows orders. He does as he is told. And then he sends a report back to David. As to how the battle is going on. And he says that Uriah the Hittite has been killed, along with several other men who were with Uriah the Hittite uh, during this you know, suicide mission. And David then sends word back to Joab saying, don't let your heart be troubled. This kind of thing happen, happens in war. And then David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And now he is covered up. He's covered up everything until... Until Nathan, the prophet, shows up. And Nathan then tells David a story. And he says, King, there was a certain town where there was two men, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many sheep and many cattle. And the poor man had but one lamb that he took care of like he was one of his own children. Well, then a a traveler came to this town who was going to stay with the rich man, and the rich man needed to prepare a meal. But instead of going to his own sheep and his own cattle, he took from the poor man the only thing that the poor man had. He took his one lamb, and he slaughtered it, and he made a meal for the traveler. And then he asked David, what should be done with the rich man? And, And David was furious. 
And he says that man deserves to die and, and, and it de- deserves to pay back four, four times over to the poor man because of his lack of pity. And then in one of the most direct moments in our Bible, Nathan the prophet points to, to David the king and says, you are the man. And then he proceeds to outline out loud everything that David had done. And in that moment, David's world just implodes. He's been found out. He's exposed to himself. He is exposed to others. His deep, dark secret is no longer secret. This man who was called by God, a man after my own heart, has now, has now violated five out of the ten commandments in one story. And all of his treachery and everything that he was doing had just sort of blinded him. But now everything is crystal clear. Everything is laid bare. And in that clarity... He writes Psalm 51. And before we jump in, I just I also just want to make comment that I think that it is amazing that we know this story at all. I mean, do you know how I know all of the details of that story? Because it's in the Bible. No other religious book in the world would do this to its heroes. No other religious book in the world humiliates its heroes like this. But the Bible does it, does it to David, does it to Moses, does it to Abraham, does it to Peter, does it to Noah, all the big names. The the message we're supposed to get from that story is not that David is somehow worse than us. The message is even David, the man after God's own heart, did this, that we are all in the same boat. The, the, The message, one of the primary themes in our Bible is that we are all sinful and we are all in the same boat. So we have the opportunity to see how this man who had been chosen by God and elevated by God and blessed by God and called by God, a man after my own heart, we have the opportunity to see how that kind of man deals with extraordinary failure. So let's look at what he writes. And just and we're going to go ahead and read verse 1 through 17. It's kind of a long, uh, it's kind of a long passage, so stick, so stick with me. Um, obviously, there's a whole lot in the psalm that we're not going to be able to pick out and stuff. But after we read it, we will uh, pick out just a few things. But let's jump in to Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, 
you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. In the New Testament book of uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how there's two different types of sorrow. He says uh, godly sorrow uh, brings repentance, which leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow leads only to death. And what he's saying is not all sorrow is created equal. They might look the same on the outside. They might both be really painful. There might be tears. There might be apologies. But one type of sorrow leads to change and growth and life and freedom. And the other type leads to no change at all. Well, Psalm 51 is the good kind. And in it, we see David uh, responding to his failure in a way that is often quite different from the way we instinctively respond in three big sort of broad areas. And those areas are how he viewed himself, how he viewed his actions, and how he viewed God. Just what I have seen in my own life and in what I've seen being a pastor for as long as I have and working with people through pain and and their circumstances, I can say that it is quite often that when we go through failure and we're trying to navigate, navigate through that, we get one or two or sometimes all three of those things wrong. We view ourselves wrong. We view our actions wrong. And we view God wrong. So what can we learn from David on how to navigate failure so that we can come out stronger? The first thing is how he viewed himself. And there's a verse, verse 5, which seems kind of troubling when we first look at it. Uh, It says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And it seems like David is saying that there was something sort of wrong with his birth. But that is not what he's saying. He's saying that when he examines himself, when he really looks and is honest, he says the capacity for darkness has always been in my life. When he looks at when he looks at himself, he says, yeah, I've kind of always been this way. He sees a family resemblance between the sins of his youth and murder. He looks at who he was as a child and who he is now, and he sees some sort of level of consistency. It's like drawing a line between murder and the cruelty of a child making fun of the fat kid. The difference in those things, those two sins, are a difference of degree. Or another way to say it is that there's a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference. That same cruelty when given opportunity, when given time to grow, when it is watered properly, can grow into the uh, can grow into murder. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus would later say, uh, whoever says to his brother, uh, you fool, is guilty of murder. He's not saying that those things are equal, but they're not as far apart as we might think. They're just there's a difference in degree. He's saying that we are all Guilty. You have one sin uh, that is planted and is, I mean, one seed, sorry, that is planted and can, 
and, and is watered and is given time to grow and is given opportunity and given opportunity for power and all of those things. And it grows into a, and it grows into a tree of murder and another seed isn't and it doesn't grow into a tree. But they're both but both seeds are the same. And so what David is saying when, when he when he says that surely I was I was conceived in, in sin, what, what he's saying is that for his whole life, he's always been a little bit broken. That there's something sort of deep and, and, and wrong with him. And so that's why, by the way, you know, let me let me back up. He is intentionally, he's not minimizing what he has done. He's intentionally sort of staying away from the argument that says that this was just one bad blip in an otherwise stellar life. He's saying, no, I've never really been that stellar. Not really. Because I'm broken. And that's why in this psalm, he's not just asking for another chance. Because he knows if he was given another chance, he'd just blow it again. Instead, he asks for God to give him a new heart. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. He wants him to, he's pleading with God to do something deep within him that he can't do with himself. Uh, This is beyond him just working a little harder next time. And so even though, you know, surely as we go through failure, we do need to put things into practice and we need to try and we need to like we we need to sort of pull our weight in some of that. We recognize that the real hard work is something that we have to submit to God to do in our life day after day after day, because for my entire life, I was just sort of born broken and I don't need another chance. I need another heart. And so that's step one and how David viewed Himself. Well, how did he view his actions? Uh, there's another sort of somewhat problematic verse, and it's right before. It's, it's verse 4. Um, before we read verse 5, and in verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. And it makes me ask, like, David, are you sure God was the only one you sinned against? Like, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about all the other soldiers that died with Uriah on that on that suicide mission that you sent them on? What about their families? What about Joab that you made a a co-conspirator in murder? What about all of the people in your kingdom that expect a little bit more from their king? David sinned against a lot of people. But this prayer is his reckoning with God. And I don't think that he is minimizing the hurt he has inflicted on other people. But I do think what he is doing is he is admitting to God that there was a foundational sin. There was a sin before all of the others. There was that he's admitting to God that had he not first rebelled against God, none of this stuff would have happened. Now think about it. Think about it this way. What? Um, let me ask you this: What had God done for David? If you know David's story, you know that God had chosen David as a young man, as a youth. God had gifted David with uncommon skills and abilities. God had blessed David um, with protection again and again and again, like more times than, than we could even count. He had blessed him with success and with favor. The whole story of David is God's unbelievable gifts and grace and love that he had bestowed out on him. And then as a response, David said, forget you, God, I'm going to do it. Do, I'm going to do whatever I want. 
David's actions were first and foremost an affront to the gifts and the grace and the love of God. He was spitting in the eye of a loving parent who had done nothing but bless him and bless him over and over and over again. So if the first step is recognizing that I'm just not I'm not just just a little bit off track. I am broken and I need for God to do something deep in my heart. The next step is to recognize that my most terrible offense has been has been against the love of God. And this is important because when we are confronted, if, if our view of Christianity is that it's just a, a list of rules and we're confronted with a list of rules that can either cause us to rebel or it could cause us to feel a little bit guilty. It might cause a little bit of, you know, uh, behavior modification, but it won't change our heart. But when we're confronted by love and when we recognize that our actions are an affront to that love, the sorrow that begins to sort of well up within us, that's the good kind of sorrow that can actually bring change. And not only when, when, when David looks at his actions, does he look at it primarily as an affront to God's love, but he also looks at his actions in transparent honesty. I have done what is evil in your sight, David says. No excuses no minimizing, no blame shifting. Have you ever been on the receiving end of an apology that wasn't like a full apology? Like one of those minimizing apologies that says, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but you really are being kind of sensitive. Or maybe one of those rationalizing apologies that says, okay, I admit what I did was wrong, but you need to admit it. Really, it's, it's pretty common. Or maybe one of my favorite is just the straight up no apology apology, the, the apology that says, I'm sorry you feel that way, you know, which sort of sounds like an apology, but like totally isn't. David doesn't do any of that. You know, there's no there's no minimizing. There's no rationalizing. There's no blame shifting. In fact, I think when it comes to issues of our hearts that needs to change, I think that it is safe to say that change cannot begin until the blame shifting ends. David just lays himself out in transparent honesty. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, Paul says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in that context, uh, confess just means agree with God. It is astounding to me just how important it is to God that we simply be honest. So much so that he would make all of these promises and, and, and reward and, and respond to our honesty with these incredible things like forgiveness and cleansing from all unrighteousness. It's astounding. I think any good counselor would, would agree and say, you know what, if you're not going to be honest, then we're just wasting each other's time. I mean, like, what's the point? If you're not going to be honest. But when we go through failure or when we just feel like a failure because of something nagging in our life or we we do something that causes such shame or whatever. Or when we go through failure, getting to that level of just gut level, transparent honesty is just super painful. But it's just. It's just part of it. 
and the, the emotions that, that accompany that. It's just part of it. And we read Psalm 51, and it is just dripping with emotion. And so when we go there in this transparent honesty and the pain that, that it brings up or the regret or those types of things, I mean, we don't have to wallow in it. The Bible never says that we have to stay there, but we might need to go there if we're going to get through that and on to the other side. And I can tell you, I can tell you from firsthand experience as a, as a pastor counseling other people and also, you know, talking with my own counselor on the both the giving of counsel and the receiving of counsel, I can tell you that when we get to that level of just sort of transparent gut level honesty, it is a profound thing when we then realize that God still loves us. It is a beautiful thing. And that kind of brings us to to the third area that we can learn from David, and that's how he views God. You know, I, I mentioned just a minute ago that, that David broke five out of the Ten Commandments in one story. And David knows full well that God has every right to withdraw his favor from him. God has every right to withdraw his love from him. Whatever story God was writing with David's life, God has every right to just end that story right there. God has every right to just end him right then, right there. And we are, but we are given no indication that David believes that that's what God's going to do. In fact, we are, giving, we are given several indications that David has hope and that he's thinking about the future. I think it's astounding how much of Psalm 51 is written in future tense. It says, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I will sing of your righteousness. I will declare your praise. You see, in the midst of David's sorrow, in the midst of his Feelings of unworthiness. Nevertheless, David has full confidence that God's going to remain faithful and that God's love will not falter. So in it, David teaches us to embrace the love of God that is both undeserved and unconditional. And this is just super, super important. Like if you've just sort of been halfway paying attention until now, please zone in and listen to this part. David teaches us to embrace the love of God that is both undeserved and unconditional. Another way to say this is God's love is undeserved because it's unconditional. Or yet another way to say it is since God's love cannot be earned, it cannot be unearned. When we come to grips with the fact that God's love is both undeserved and unconditional, realizing that it does two things for us simultaneously. One it humbles us, and two, it builds our confidence. It humbles us because it reminds us just how unworthy we are of God's love. But it builds our confidence because we're reminded that God's love and his goodness isn't dependent upon me. And it's, it's really dangerous if we just feel one of those things and not the other. 
Like if we only feel unworthy and we never feel confident in God's love, then we will, we will just be overwhelmed with shame and we will withdraw from God and we will pull away from the things of God and the people of God and we'll just sort of go through life with our fingers crossed hoping that God will somehow show us mercy when we die. And we won't change. It's equally dangerous if we, if we just feel confident in God's love and we never feel unworthy because then we just feel self-righteous or then we just make excuses or then we just feel sorry for ourselves when we actually have to like deal with consequences and we don't change. David felt completely unworthy and fully confident at the same time. He felt unworthy because he was honest when he looked at himself and when he looked at his actions. But he felt completely confident in God's love because of what he believed to be true about the nature of God. That God's primary goal is not to punish us or to teach us a lesson. He is for us. And when we combine that, that sort of understanding of God's love with the other two things, you know, of how we see ourselves and how we see our actions, it is a powerful combination because then David could go confidently before God and not just ask for another chance, but ask for another heart and ask for God to continue that work in his life and know that that God's not going to discontinue that just because of David's failure. And David could feel safe to be honest with God and know he's not going to be rejected. I mentioned earlier how often we get this wrong in one way or another. And what I see in my own life and what I see in the lives of of friends, you know, that go through times of failure is that instinctively we either just allow ourselves to be so overwhelmed with shame that we just withdraw from God out of fear or just out of just the feelings of shame. And we withdraw from the people of God and the things of God or instinctively, we just double down on religious activity and we make all these resolutions. Okay, I'm not going to skip church anymore. I'm going to go every weekend. You know, I'm going to read my Bible every day and I'm going to serve the poor and I'm going to give financially. All great things. All great things. They're not great if you want to earn something, though. They're not great if you're trying to prove something, though, like if you're trying to prove that you really are a good person. They're not great if they're if you're trying to fix something that religion was never really meant to fix. Even David, in the end of this psalm, says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David says, if your delight was religion, then that's what I would focus on. But that is not your delight. Your delight is my broken spirit that I bring to you. A humble and contrite heart that is open and bare and transparent and honest before you. That is your delight. Listen, I, I know that working through failure is, it's just super complicated. And I would recommend, you know, getting wise counsel, you know, and talking to people. Talk, find a counselor, find a trusted friend. And it can take different forms. You know, sometimes we can just feel so disappointed in ourselves because of some sin that we can't seem to shed. Or just so ashamed because we've blown it. And there's no quick fix but there is a process and or rather maybe some lenses 
through which we just sort of view reality, and they do make a difference. And so what have we learned? Um, What has David taught us? Number one, we admit that we're not just mildly off track, but rather we admit that we are deeply broken. And we have a strong capacity for darkness within us, and we don't just need another chance. We need another heart. And so as we... As we work, you know, to to do better and work harder and all that kind of stuff, we nevertheless walk in dependency on God uh, day by day by day to do something within us that we can't do within ourselves, that we need him to do that work. And number two, we come to God in transparent honesty and we admit that our most heinous thing that we have done has been a rebellion, has been a crime against his against his grace, against his gifts and against his love. And if that wells up within us a certain sense of sorrow, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then number three, we hold fast to a love that both humbles us and lifts our head. And we allow ourselves to believe at that moment what, what's, what seems too good to be true, but we allow ourselves to believe that God is for us. And that, and that he has never loved us any more or any less than that moment, and that he loves simply because he's loving. And we hold on to that, and we pray a prayer like that day after day after day, because transformation is a journey, it's not an event. And after a while, we are then able to survey our lives, and lo and behold, we see that God has sustained us. That that lo and behold, God didn't leave us. And he's even beginning to change some things within me for the better. And that's how we do it. That's how we go through failure in a way that leaves us stronger. And David shows us how. I'm going to pray for us. And um, I just know that um, this is a tough thing maybe for some of us to hear. But I hope ultimately... um, It's an encouraging thing that no matter what, no matter what, God loves you. God loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are both humbled and overwhelmed by your incredible love for us. We do not deserve the grace that you have given to us, but Father, you have told us that we can count on it nonetheless. And we are so incredibly grateful. And we pray that in our biggest failings and also in our smaller daily failings, that you would teach us to keep coming back, to keep opening ourselves up to your transforming power, to keep being honest, to stop the blame shifting, to come to you in honest, transparent confession and need Father, we thank you that you do not turn us away. And we pray that you would give us the strength, even this week, to walk in confidence of your love. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.